like to have you turn with me to Daniel chapter 9, if you would. We have a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time, so we need to jump right into it. Daniel chapter 9. When Daniel chapter 9 opens, the city of Jerusalem is lying in ruins. The walls have been destroyed. The temple has been decimated. Rubble is laying in the streets. Houses are collapsing all around. The city is a wasteland. The term that Jeremiah uses it is that it is a desolation. It's empty. It's uninhabited, deserted. And Jerusalem is a picture, then, of what happens in life when uh, sin goes unrepented of. It's a picture of a life which is wasted by sin and blighted and ruined by self-centeredness and disobedience and uh, selfishness. And Jerusalem becomes a picture, then, for what happens in life when We ourselves do things that are selfish and self-centered. When we get ourselves in trouble because we deserve to be there. When bad things happen to us because we are bad people. Now at the end of this uh, chapter, we'll see that the process by which God was going to restore and rebuild this wasted city had begun. And Daniel was the key figure in launching this process of restoration and rebuilding. And so what we see in Daniel chapter 9, in Daniel's example then, is a process by which we can begin to rebuild and restore what we ourselves have damaged by our own sin. Whether it's a a wasted life that's uh, been wrecked by our own selfishness and self-will, whether it's a marriage which has been destroyed or ruined by our own actions, uh, Perhaps even a minor breach in a marriage because of a fight or some quarrel or disagreement. The same principles that apply to patching up the big breaches also apply to patching up the little ones. And we'll see in Daniel's example in this chapter how we can be people that God uses to rebuild and restore the damage that we ourselves have created. Now, the setting for Daniel's prayer is given in the first two verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. The first year of Darius was the year 539 B.C. This year will have some significance later in the chapter, as we will see. This took place under the reign of Darius, Daniel tells us. As David indicated when we studied chapter 5, there's some uh, difference of opinion among scholars about who this Darius was and his exact relationship to Cyrus, who was the king of the world at this point. Many scholars think that Darius is simply another name for Cyrus. For myself, it seems to me that Darius was most likely the first king of Babylon that Cyrus installed while Cyrus was off running the world in Persia. I think this because Darius is described in verse 1 as of Median descent, whereas Cyrus was a Persian. Darius, we're told, was made king. Someone made him king, Cyrus the most likely choice. And he was king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, that is, over the kingdom of Babylon, whereas Cyrus was king of Persia and of the whole earth. But at any rate, this provides the historical setting then for this prayer of repentance and belief on Daniel's part. Now, we're told in verse 2 that the initial event which triggered this process of restoration was Daniel's study of the Scriptures. 
says in verse 2 that I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years. The word that's translated observed there in verse 2 means to give heed to or to consider with attention. So it reveals another aspect of Daniel's character, that he was a student of the Scriptures, that he read it carefully, he pondered it, he meditated on it, and he gave heed to what it said. He observed in the books the number of the years. This is rather striking because we know that Daniel himself was a prophet, that he was accustomed to receiving revelation directly from the Lord. And yet he realized that that was no substitute for being a personal, first-hand student of the Scripture. And that's a good reminder for us this morning. No matter how much good teaching we're exposed to here at Cole, no matter how much good teaching we're exposed to on the radio or on television, there is no substitute for being a student of the Scripture yourself, giving heed to the books of God. Now, it's striking that Daniel would have a copy of the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel's. He prophesied in Palestine uh, for a number of years after Daniel had been carted off to Babylon. And we know that Jeremiah died in Egypt. And yet here is a copy of his prophecy appearing in Babylon just some years after his death. So evidently someone had hand-copied some of the prophecies of Jeremiah and they had made their way 900 miles across the desert to Babylon, where Daniel, perhaps using his influence as the third in the kingdom, had been able to get his hands on them. And one morning in Daniel's quiet time, and this is another interesting feature about Daniel, a very busy man, third in the kingdom of Babylon, and yet finding time for the personal study of the Scripture. One morning in his quiet time, his devotions, he comes across a... A resting passage in Jeremiah 25. If you turn there, you'll see what got Daniel's attention. Just back up a few pages and you'll find Jeremiah 25. Now the first part of Jeremiah 25 is the record of Jeremiah's prophecy that if the nation did not turn from their disobedience and rebellion, they would be taken into captivity. Jeremiah prophesied that and it was a prophecy that came true. Nebuchadnezzar, in a series of sieges, took the best and brightest of Israel off into captivity, as we have already seen in the book of Daniel. And Jeremiah's prophecy of their captivity was abundantly fulfilled. And yet Daniel read further down to verse 11 and 12. It says, And this whole land, referring to Palestine, shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it, that is the land of Babylon, an everlasting desolation. So what Daniel realized is the people were getting exactly what they deserved. This desolation had come upon them because of their own sin and their own willfulness. And yet God had set a fixed period for this desolation. It was only to last 70 years. And the signal that this period of desolation was over was when God would punish the king of Babylon, who had been the one to punish Israel for its unrighteousness. Now that punishing of the king of Babylon had happened in this very year. 539 B.C. was the year in which Cyrus had overthrown the Babylonians. And so Daniel realized from Jeremiah's prophecy that the time that God had set for the period of desolations was at, was at an end. And God was now prepared to restore and reverse the desolation that he had brought upon the city of Jerusalem. 
And that's what triggers Daniel's prayer. If you go back 70 years in Israel's history, you find that you come out at 609 B.C., starting in 539. In 609 B.C., the last good and righteous king in Israel, King Josiah, died. He was responsible for a great renewal, spiritual renewal in the kingdom. And yet he died in 609 B.C., the last righteous king, the last man who could withstand the Babylonian invasion. And he was succeeded on the throne in Judah by a series of bozos who prepared the way for Nebuchadnezzar to come and cart the people off into captivity. And that began the, began the period of their desolations. And Daniel realized that this period of desolation was at an end. And he had a confidence in the scriptures that the direction and instructions that he found here could be relied upon, and he was willing to take action on that basis. It's a great comfort, by the way, to have a series of directions or instructions that you can rely on. Uh, yesterday, I picked up one of these uh, No Tools Required Installs in Minutes uh, faucets. And believe that, I've got news uh, for you. An hour later and uh, eight or nine tools later, it was installed, but it's made me wonder about the years of trouble-free service that I was also promised on the cover. But at any rate, Daniel found a series of instructions in the Scripture that were reliable, and this triggered his prayer of response. Now, we, his prayer we see in verses 3 through 19. This prayer can be divided into two sessions or sections. Verses 3 through 15 is Daniel's prayer of repentance and confession, and verses 16 through 19 is his prayer of faith and belief. Verse 3, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. The fasting and sackcloth and ashes would be external symbols of Daniel's internal heart of repentance. And he says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. This word for prayer is a very interesting one in verse 4. It literally means to intervene. And this gives us a beautiful picture of what intercessory prayer really is. That what Daniel saw from his vantage point was a needy and bankrupt and desolate people. And what he saw, on the other hand, was a mighty God of great resource and power and sufficiency. And he saw himself by his prayer as the man who could link these two together, who could be the bridge between the resources of God and the need of his people. He was a middleman in this business of transacting uh, the transfer of spiritual wealth. And that's what we do when we pray for others. We are spiritual middlemen uh, connecting, linking a needy people with the power of God. And we need to realize that this business of intercessory prayer is not just an academic exercise, but it works. It was Daniel's intercessory prayer here that was directly responsible for the re renewal of an entire nation. So intercessory prayer works. Now let me read this prayer, and then I will draw several lessons uh, from it. As I read verses 3 through 15, what I would like you to observe is the number of ways in which Daniel expresses to God his conviction that the people are guilty and that they have sinned. The strong note of deep repentance colors this prayer. Please note that as I read. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. 
Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, even though we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked." The first observation I make out of this prayer is that Daniel realized that the people were getting exactly what they deserved, that their own sin had produced this damage and this destruction in life. In verse 11, the curse and the oath that he refers to are the curses and oaths that God had laid down in Deuteronomy 28, and he had promised the people that if you continue to trust me, I will bless you and make the life fruitful and abundant for you. But if you cease depending upon me and depend instead upon yourselves and ignore my teachings about life, then the land will be cursed because of you. And I will withdraw my blessing from the land. And then you realize that that's exactly what had happened. Now, God tells us the same thing under the terms of the new covenant. What he says in Romans 6.23, a familiar verse to us all, the wages of sin, Paul says, is death. That sin pays wages. That every time we sin, Paul says, we draw a paycheck. And he's a faithful paymaster. He doesn't miss a single payment. Every time we sin, we draw a paycheck. And the coin in which sin pays is the coin of death. Now what this means, practically speaking, is that we really do not get away with anything. It's tempting to think that when we sin and nothing bad happens, and one of our teeth doesn't turn black or a clump of hair doesn't fall out, that somehow we've gotten away with something. And yet in this very striking phrase in verse 14, Daniel says, The Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. So in other words, all during this 300-year period in which the prophets had been warning the people and pleading with them to repent and to turn, they had consistently ignored this appeal, and yet it seemed like nothing bad was happening. 
And yet the day came when the whole thing collapsed like a house of cards. We've seen this tragically illustrated with the bakers just in the recent months. Uh, an act uh, which took place over seven years ago in which they were convinced they'd covered over, papered over, eventually came to light. God had kept the calamity in store because judgment begins with the household of God. I was talking to a computer technician several months ago who was explaining to me why I need a surge protector for my uh, computer. I was curious as to why this was recommended. And she explained that uh, every once in a while, a surge of power will pass through the transmission lines. They're called spikes in the terminology. And every time one of these spikes passes through the electrical lines and into your computer, it does a small amount of damage to the circuitry. Not enough that anyone would notice. The operator's unaware of it. There are no evident signs of destruction or disintegration. But if enough of these spikes pass into the computer and they're not protected, the computer's not protected by one of these surge protectors, eventually enough damage will be done to the circuitry that the whole thing will shut down. Now that's what had happened spiritually to Israel. The whole system had shut down. And Daniel was the one who was there to bring it back online. Now, the second observation I make about this prayer is that it's very evident that the first step in restoring uh, a wasted life, a wasted marriage, a ruptured breach in a relationship, the first step is repentance. And this was always the first step that we must take in restoring a broken relationship, whether it's with God or with our spouse or with our children. Whoever wrote, uh, love means never having to say you're sorry, didn't have clue uh, one, as Daniel makes clear. Now, you've noticed, as we read through there, the number of synonyms that Daniel uses for sin. He refers to sin, rebellion, wickedness, uh, iniquity. We have turned aside. We have not obeyed your voice. Now, it's as if Daniel is saying to the Lord, Lord, I just can't tell you how sorry I am. If you've ever done something that you knew was terribly wrong and you felt horribly about it and went back to that person to make it right, you realize how quickly words fail you in trying to communicate the depth of your sorrow. And that's what Daniel was experiencing here. He says, Lord, I can't tell you how sorry I am. And he piles verb upon verb to explain the, uh, make clear the depth of his repentance. And this is the only kind of repentance, by the way, that results in restoration and true renewal. It's not enough to say, if I have done something wrong, I hope you will forgive me. If you've ever had that said to you, you know that that doesn't quite cut it. And that's not what Daniel is saying here. It's not half-hearted or shallow, but it's deep and it's from the heart. I heard a story that illustrates the uh, shallowness of repentance and how it does not result in restoration. So a young man went to uh, uh, confession one week and he said, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I And the Father says, well, my son, what did you do? And he says, well, I stole some lumber from the lumber yard where I work, and I'm, I'm really terribly sorry. And so the priest says, well, I'm afraid you'll have to say a Hail Mary each day this week to do penance. He came back a week later and said, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. And the priest said, well, what did you do? He says, well, I stole some more lumber from my lumber yard this week, and I really feel terrible about it. And so the priest said, well, I'm afraid this week he'll have to say two Hail Marys every day to do penance. So the young man comes back the third week and sits down and says, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. And the priest says, well, what did you do? He says, well, doggone it, I stole some more lumber from the lumber yard this week, and I really feel awful. 
And the priest said, well, I'm afraid this week you are going to have to make a novena. Do you know how to make a novena? And the young man says, well, no, I don't, but if you can get the plans, I can get the lumber. <laughs> now, Daniel's repentance was unlike the repentance of that young man. It was deep and did not necessitate a second trip to the confessional. And you notice that Daniel does not try to justify or excuse what he does. We all tend to do that, to justify our sin on the basis of the fact that we're Italian or Irish or oversexed or overworked or something to that nature, and tend to excuse sin on the basis of the extenuating circumstances. Just this week, I had had a very short night of sleep, and uh, the day after that, I was a bit short and impatient with Debbie, with uh, predictable results, I might add. And um, I was, uh, as I was thinking about how I should respond, I found this irresistible tendency to justify my own impatience on the basis of how exhausted I was. Now, Daniel would never resort to something like that. In fact, what kind of stopped me in my tracks is I just that very afternoon sat around a coffee table with three men, and we'd all been remarking about how little self-justification there was in Daniel's prayer here, and it suddenly struck me in the middle of my thought that this is not the way Daniel would have responded. So there's just genuine repentance, deep, and it's heartfelt. And you'll notice all the way through here, Daniel uses the word we in verse 5. We have sinned. And all the way through, he uses the first person plural. Now, it's tempting to think that Daniel is simply identifying himself with the people here. And in reality, what he's saying in his heart, Lord, they have sinned. They have committed iniquity. Because all the way through here, we've seen no hint of anything in Daniel but integrity and righteousness and courage. In fact, when I was young, I remember on a Wednesday evening prayer meeting at the church. My dad was the pastor, and we were studying Daniel for some at that point. And he asked the congregation, what do we know about Daniel? And I distinctly remember some woman raising her hand and saying, well, Daniel is one of the few men in the Bible about whom no sin is recorded. And for some reason, that's always stuck with me. So we're inclined to think that Daniel is simply being gracious here and identifying himself with the people who've done all of these horrible things. And yet if you read ahead into verse 20, you realize that that's not the case. Daniel says in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. In other words, Daniel realized that he stood in need of forgiveness just as much as these people who had done all these horrible things. He was just as guilty. His heart was just as black and just as inclined to evil as anyone. As David mentioned last week, it's not possible to be a truly good man until we realize how bad we are and how bad we can be until we have a realistic recognition of the evil that every one of us is capable of. Uh, even the best of us has a heart which is black and apart from the grace of God. We would do things that would destroy our careers and destroy our families. Every one of us. And Daniel realized that, that about himself. I read not long ago of a woman who was on her deathbed and she called her daughter to her side. And the mother's eyes were closed. She knew that death was not far away. And she said to her daughter, with her eyes still closed, Is it true, is it really true that God does forgive us for everything that we have done wrong? And her daughter was rather shocked and said, Well, yes, Mother, of course, uh, you know that's true. And, but then, and then she said, But, but Mother, what have, what have you ever done for which you would need God's forgiveness? And her mother kept her eyes closed and simply said, That is none of your business. 
But uh, it's a reminder that even the, even in the best of us, there is a heart which is capable of evil. And Daniel recognized that and realized that was something for which we must confess. Now, a third observation I make about this prayer is what it reveals about the nature and character of God. You'll notice in verse 5 that he is described, or verse 4, as a great and awesome God. In other words, the God to whom Daniel prayed was a God who would judge his people if he had to. He was a great and awesome God. He was not, as C.S. Lewis tells us in the Narnia Chronicles, he was not a tame lion. Not some sort of cosmic buddy that we can wrap around our finger or some kind of heavenly errand boy to satisfy our wandering desires, as Bob Dylan says. But he is a great and awesome God. But in addition to that, in verse 9, we see that Daniel realized that God was a God of compassion and forgiveness, even though, he says, we have rebelled against him. That he recognized that God was the sort of God that stood by, ready to extend his compassion and forgiveness, even to people who had rebelled and acted wickedly and turned from him and ignored his teaching for hundreds of years. He stood by, ready instantly to forgive and to restore the word compassion here is related to the Hebrew word for the womb. And it's a picture of the kind of love that a mother has for the offspring of her own womb. And if you can picture a mother with a new baby cradled in her arms and the tenderness and the love that is demonstrated there, you get a picture of the kind of love and compassion that God has for us, even though and even when we have rebelled, even when we've been disobedient and sinful. God's attitude toward us is the attitude of a loving mother with the offspring of her own womb. And Daniel understood then that it's not possible for us to outsin God's grace. As John said in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And that conviction about God's character is what prompts Daniel's prayer of faith in verses 16 through 19. Not only was this prayer a prayer of repentance, in verses 3 through 15, but it was a, pr a prayer of renewed faith and dependence. Verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now this is a prayer of faith on Daniel's part, asking God to intercede on behalf of a repentant people and restore in other words, what Daniel realized that in dealing with sin in our own lives and the damage that we cause, it is not simply enough to repent. Because what we're inclined to do is to repent and then make a pledge to ourselves never to do that again. And because we are depending on an instrument which is weak and frail, we will do the very same thing again in short order. 
What Daniel realizes is that the only long-term solution is not simply to repent, but to place renewed faith in God to be the one to make us righteous so that we do better the next time by His power and His strength to repent and to believe. It's clear that we need this. A friend of mine was telling me between services that her daughter uh, told her just last night that I know that Jesus takes away my sins, but he must keep giving them back because I still do them. Well, what is the answer to that perpetual problem? Well, it's to renew our dependence upon God and the indwelling power of Christ to take action on our behalf and to make us into people who are gradually set free from these sins which destroy us and hurt others around us. Now, you notice that Daniel's appeal in this prayer of faith is based on his concern for God's glory and reputation. In other words, God had judged his own people, the people in the city which were called by his name, but that diminished his reputation in the eyes of the world because the people around saw the city which was called by the name of the Lord and they saw it lying in a heap of ruins and it had become, as Daniel says, a reproach to all the nations, a byword or a proverb as some of the other prophets refer to it. And Daniel's prayer is that God would restore and rebuild this wasted nation, this wasted life, in order that his reputation and his honor might be established once again. And by the way, I think this ought to be what shapes our prayers in this uh, PTL situation with the bakers, is that when we observe that, we should not in self-righteousness pray, Lord, they have sinned, they have committed iniquity. But a reminder to ourselves to confess to God the evil in our own hearts that if given the right opportunity would lead us to do the very same things and worse. And then to pray that out of this whole mess, God will do a work of restoration and rebuilding that will burnish once again his reputation. These are people, this is a ministry called by his name. And his reputation suffers any time he must step in and judge. And so therefore our prayer ought to be, Lord, please restore and rebuild in order that your name and your glory might once again shine. And so this is what Daniel understood, that the two steps in, in repairing a breach, repairing the damage that we've done by our own sin, is first of all to repent honestly, genuinely from the heart, and secondly to renew our faith in God to act on our behalf and be the one who restores. Now in response to Daniel's prayer in verses 20 through 27, he is given a revelation of the future. Now while I was speaking and praying in verse 20, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. Notice the toll that it took on Daniel and how this reveals again the intensity and genuineness of his repentance came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Daniel says twice in verse 20 and 21 that Gabriel came while I was still speaking and praying. In other words, the point there is to show how instant God's response was to repentance and faith, how immediately he was prepared to take action and respond. And we see in verse 23 that Daniel is described as one who was highly esteemed. 
In other words, this shows the value or the preciousness that God places upon those of his people who are willing to honestly confess their own sin and not excuse it or justify it or explain it away, but to own up to it and to acknowledge it. He values that. He prizes that. And Daniel was highly esteemed as a result. But obviously the most striking phrase in this little paragraph is the one at the beginning of verse 23. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued. The command to which Gabriel refers here in verse 23 was the command that Cyrus had issued in this very year, 539, authorizing the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and repopulate the land. And Gabriel says to Daniel, at the beginning of your supplication, this command was issued. That is in verse 3. While you were still in verse 3, in verse 4, this command was issued. Now realize that Daniel was in Babylon. And 500 miles away in the capital of Persia, at the very moment Daniel began to pray, the edict was issued which reversed this period of desolation in Jerusalem's history at the beginning of your supplications, again showing how eager God was to respond. It's as if God was waiting for just one man to come to the place of repentance and belief before he was prepared to act. As James said, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And here was one man by his own confession and faith who turned around the fortunes of an entire nation. God's often done this down through history, responded immediately like this over great distances to these sorts of prayer. Uh, Hudson Taylor was the great pioneer missionary to China, and his conversion is a story of this type. He was living some distance from his mother who was burdened for his uh, relationship with God. And one evening she felt burdened to pray specifically for him and for his salvation. And it turns out that at that very moment, at the very moment she began to pray, he was in a farmhouse some 60 miles away, rather bored and rummaging around in this house where he was staying for something to read and found a booklet which laid out the plan of salvation. And in response to what he read in that little booklet, he became a believer and consequently the pioneer apostle to China. At the very beginning of her supplications, the prayer was granted. And this shows, again, how eager God is to respond, even to the first initial step of repentance and forgiveness on our part. Well, this raises the question, is why didn't Gabriel stop him in verse 5 then? Why did he let Daniel finish this entire prayer? Well, it's not as if Gabriel was saying, you know, I really wanted to kind of stop you, but it was such a nice prayer I didn't want to interrupt. It wasn't something like that. It's rather that Gabriel knew that although God did not need for Daniel to finish this prayer, he knew that Daniel needed to finish this prayer. That prayer is much more for our benefit rather than for God's. Prayer is not a way of aligning God's will with ours, and persistent prayer is not a way of sort of talking God into doing what we want, because as we've seen here, he responds and hears immediately. It doesn't have to be coerced or cajoled. But we need prayer for our sake in order to align our will with the will of God. And this tells us, by the way, how much uh, we should pray. We should pray just as often and just as much uh, as we need to. It is more for our benefit than for God's. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, even before you ask, the Father knows what you need. Now, the vision that Gabriel gives Daniel is the vision of the 70 weeks in verses 24 through 27. Read those in just a moment, but before I do, I want to 
explained uh, that there are any number of ways to understand these 70 weeks. As many interpreters of the Bible as you have, you will have that many interpretations of what the 70 weeks are, particularly what the 70th week is. So what I will do in the interest of time, I will simply explain to you how I understand this, and uh, David will have ample opportunity for rebuttal in weeks to come. And this will be a lesson to you to make up your own mind about these issues. I'm not exactly sure where David is on this, but I think we have a slight difference of opinion. But I would encourage this to be simply the beginning of your thinking about this uh, issue and not the end of your study. Seventy weeks, Gabriel says, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, a total of 69. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Seventy weeks, he said, has been decreed for the things that he lists in verse 24. Now, all six of these things, I believe, that Jesus accomplished or began to accomplish in his incarnation, in the first advent. And the things that he began to do in his incarnation will be culminated in his return, but they were inaugurated in his incarnation. Seventy weeks, he says, have been decreed for your people in your holy city. Notice the connection with verse 19. That was Daniel's prayer, a prayer for the city and the people. And this is Gabriel's response. This is what God has in store for the people in the city. To finish the transgression. If you have a marginal note, you'll indicate that the literal reading of that verb is to restrain transgression. To make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. This is the first thing that Daniel focuses in. These three things, or Gabriel focuses in on, these three things all have to do with the one who would come and deal with sin. This is Gabriel's promise to Daniel, that there is one who is coming who is going to solve the sin problem for your city and your people. He will be the one who will make an end to sin by making atonement for iniquity. He will come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin so that iniquity can be forgiven. And he is the one who will restrain the transgression, who will impart to the people not only forgiveness, but the ability to overcome the transgression that damages them and hurts others. And then the last three in verse 24 have to do with the accomplishing of God's purposes in the world, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's a reference to God setting up the kingdom of God in his incarnation to seal up vision and prophecy. A reference, I think, to the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. They were sealed up, gathered up, authenticated, fulfilled in Him. And to anoint the most holy place. 
under the terms of the new covenant, we know that the holy place, the temple, is the people of God. It's the church. And Jesus anointed the holy place by anointing us, the most holy place of God, with the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 25, he says a really remarkable thing. And I want you to track with me carefully on this because I think, for myself, this is the single most remarkable prophecy in the entire Bible. This will blow your socks off if you pay attention. He says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or a total of 69 weeks. The issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, Gabriel says, will start the clock of the 70 weeks ticking. Now, we know from our study in Nehemiah last year that that decree was issued under Artaxerxes when he authorized Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls of the city. It was dated as Nisan 1, as you remember, formerly known as Datsun 1, but it was dated to Nisan 1 of 444 B.C. Now, on our calendar, that is March 5th, 444 B.C. And he says the city will be rebuilt with plaza. You remember in Nehemiah, that's where Ezra read the law, was in the plaza, one of the large squares by the gate. Even in times of distress, remember that they had to work with a trowel in one hand and a spear in the other because of the opposition. It says the city will be rebuilt, and from the issuing of that decree, 69 weeks, and by this he means weeks of years, 69 units of seven years later, Messiah the Prince will come. 69 weeks times 7 years gives you a total of 483 years for this 69 weeks. Uh, A year in that time was measured as 360 days, so you have 483 years predicted of 360 days each until the coming of Messiah the Prince. And you multiply that out, and it comes out to 173,880 days. Take my word for it. Now, if you start counting on March 5th of 444 B.C., and you count forward 173,880 days, you come out to March 30th, 33 A.D. Now, that coincidentally happens to be Monday of Passion Week the day on which Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey as its king, as the Messiah who was acknowledged by the people as the king of Israel, right to the very day. Now Daniel says in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, indicating there is a gap between the 69th and 70th week. And in this interim period, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, a reference to his crucifixion four days after his triumphal entry. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That seems to be a reference to Titus' destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And that same person in verse 27 will make a firm covenant, it says, or literally will confirm a covenant with the many for one week. And very quickly, I think by the 70th week here, which is referred to in verse 27, although many take this to be entirely future to our time, an antichrist will one day arise who will make a treaty with... Israel and put a stop to the sacrifices offered in a rebuilt temple. For myself, I think the 70th week is the period of the Roman-Jewish War from May of 66 A.D. to May of 73 A.D. From May of 66 when the war broke out to May of 73 when the last remnants of the resistance died on uh, Masada, 
seven-year period, which was the 70th week in Daniel's prophecy. And in the middle of that 70th week, we're told, uh, the sacrifice and grain offering would be, would be stopped. And that happened in the summer of 70 A.D., about halfway through this final period of seven weeks. And the one would come then who would make the temple desolate once again. Titus violated the Holy of Holies by walking into the holy place and looking around and destroying the temple of God, the place called by his name. Now, the striking thing is, regardless of how you understand that, that what Gabriel is telling Daniel is that the city is going to be rebuilt, but it's going to be destroyed again. Another period of desolation will come upon the city and upon the sanctuary. Well, there's a couple of lessons out of this prophecy of the 70 weeks. One, very clearly, is that God knows the future right down to the very day. If you're at some kind of transition point in life facing an uncertain future, rest assured that God knows the future right down to the very day. and He is in control of your future and will accomplish His purposes. And the other thing to realize is that our only hope is in a Messiah who will restrain transgression make an atonement for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. God's people will experience, he says, one wave of desolation and destruction after another, often for their own sin. There will be one final desolation of the temple in 70 A.D. for the people's sin. And so what we must do is come back to the Messiah, the one who is to come, who can make atonement for our iniquity, who can restrain the transgression which threatens to destroy us, and can bring in everlasting righteousness, make us more and more like God's people. Well, these are the lessons I would like us to take from Daniel's example here in chapter 9. If you have a fight with your wife this week, remember these four steps. First of all, ask yourself, what does the Scripture say about my behavior and my conduct? Not my wife's conduct, but mine. What does the Scripture say about that? And if it reveals something for which I must repent, then that's the second step, to repent honestly from your heart for what you've done. And third, to renew your dependence upon Jesus to make you the man or the woman that you ought to be the next time you're tested. And then fourth, to trust God to work out this plan of restoration and rebuilding in your future and count upon Him to do that. In closing, I would like to have you pray with me a prayer of confession that's found in the Book of Common Prayer. I've looked this over and can pray it with sincerity myself, and I trust that you will pray this along with me in your own heart. I will read it as a prayer of my own, and I ask you to pray along with me. Let's pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare them, O Lord, who confess their faults. Restore them that are penitent according to your promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that I may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, To the glory of your holy name, amen.